Okay, we'll get started here. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for this precious little book of, of Ruth that tells us so much about the person and work of your son and how he has intervened on our behalf, how he has purchased us, how he's provided for our salvation. We ask that you will help us to glean the many truths that this book has for us. And we ask that you would be with us tonight. In, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Ruth, Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. The, the picture that this book presents to us is one of the most colorful, one of the most poignant pictures of the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf. So we'll take a look at the flight characteristics here. The facts. Though the book's author is not known for certain, some scholars uh, link Ruth with the book of Judges, pointing to the prophet Samuel as the author of both books. That's certainly what, what Jewish tradition does. It attributes the, the book to, to Samuel. Because of the references to David, his, his throne and his genealogy, Ruth was likely written in around 1010 to 970 BC. It mentions David, but it doesn't mention his son Solomon, so it, it's thought that the book was probably written uh, sometime around the, the reign of King David. Ruth is the only book in the Old Testament named after an ancestor of Jesus Christ. It's the only one named after a non-Jew. And it's one of only two in the entire Bible named after a woman. The other, of course, being Esther, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. Ruth's name means friendship. And she really showed her quality in that area. Hers is a story of God's providence and redemption overlying, overlaying the main story line of human love and relational interaction. The uh, itinerary, well, it's all about love in this book. The love that, that Ruth had for Naomi. The love between Boaz and Ruth. And of course, it pictures the great love that our kinsman redeemer has for us. So the first chapter is love's resolve. The second chapter is love's response. The third chapter is love's request. When Ruth goes to Boaz at the threshing floor. And then finally, chapter four is love's reward. When Ruth marries Boaz and has a child, Obed. Gospel, well, hints of the coming Messiah can be seen in the character of Boaz. Like Jesus, he was both qualified and willing to redeem his people. Just as Boaz eventually did for Ruth, Jesus became our Redeemer, who paid all our debts, our Avenger, who defends us against our adversaries, and our Mediator, accomplishing our reconciliation with God the Father. The history, Ruth, was most likely written around the reign of David, 
But the story actually takes place during the time of the book of Judges. So it takes place uh, during the time of the book of Judges. It was probably written just a little bit later when David became king. Therefore, Ruth should be understood, historically speaking, within Judges' time frame. Judges covers about 300 years, a little bit over that, from roughly 1380 B.C. to 1050 B.C. The period was one of unrest and faithlessness toward God. Yet Ruth paints a picture for us of the enduring faithfulness of the few, as well as the deep love they had for one another and for God. And I'll I'll talk just shortly about a a clue that may give us a more specific uh, date for these events. The travel tips, some of the things that we learn from the book of Ruth. Ruth and Naomi's story shows us the value of relationships and the power of faith. Neither woman took for granted what she had in the other. Trust, loyalty, sincerity, and love. And God honored Ruth's faith and obedience by grafting her into the family tree from which Jesus would come. God keeps his commitments and he expects us to keep ours. Ruth's commitment to Naomi played a key part in establishing the genealogy of the Messiah. You never know how being a person of your word can change your world. Kindness is the key to successful relationships. What attracts people to Christ is not your outward appearance, but your inward character. When you regularly show kindness, respect, and gratitude, God will shine through you. As the book of Ruth opens, we read about the family of Elimelech. And they left Israel, they left Bethlehem, and went to the land of Moab. In the days when the judges ruled, there's that setting, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, it's it's important that it specifies uh, Bethlehem in Judah, because you see there's another Bethlehem up further north. So it's it's telling you that which Bethlehem, the one in Judah. That's the one we're reading about. And we read that there was a famine in the land. And that may give us a clue as to when in the when the, in the period of Judges this happened. Drought and famine were among the judgments God said would come upon the land as a result of failure to keep the law. And we certainly do read a lot about that in the book of Judges. So in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God warned Israel that if they failed to obey him, that there would be famine in the land. So we read about, in one of the cycles of Israel's disobedience and oppression and God raising up a judge to deliver them, uh, it's in reference to Gideon, it's during his judgeship. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So there's this period of, of seven years 
of oppression under the Midianites. And we read about some of the details of this period of oppression. And so it was, when Israel had sown, that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites, and the children of the east, and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth, and left no sustenance for Israel. And they came as grasshoppers for multitude, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. So the, the judge, this oppression that came just before Gideon rose up to be a judge in Israel, was one that was characterized by famine. So it's, there's a good chance that the famine that we read about in, in Ruth that caused Elimelech and his family to leave Israel was this very, very famine. Because we know that there are natural causes for famine. One of them, the most obvious, of course, is drought. When there isn't rain, uh, there are very poor harvests. Uh, uh, Famine can also be caused by just the opposite, too much rain. If the fields are too wet and farmers can't get into the fields to plant their crops, uh, there's a very poor harvest then, too. But the other thing that can cause famine is man-made famine. We've seen a lot of that uh, in the 20th century in, in East Africa with, with Ethiopia and Sudan where warfare causes famine, where people are intentionally starved. And that was certainly the case with the, with the Midianites. They were deliberately causing hardship, famine for the Israelites. Another thing that we learn in this beginning of, of the book of Ruth is about Moab, a man of Bethlehem in Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Moab was a son of Lot, the fruit of the incestuous relation of Lot with one of his daughters. The other daughter produced Ammon. Uh, We also learn that Moabites hired Balaam to curse Israel during Israel's pilgrimage to Canaan. So there was a lot of of, uh, bad blood between Israel and and Moab, although that wasn't always the case. When David was fleeing from Saul, he found a good friend in the king of Moab. And that may be due to the fact that there's some family relation between, between David and Moab. But generally, Moab was not, was not liked by the Israelites. We, we, in the New Testament, we read about the Good Samaritan. And we, we, because of that, we get it into our minds that, well, all Samaritans are good. That's typical of Samaritans. Well, that wasn't the way that the Jewish people in Christ's day looked at the Samaritans. Um, the, the reason that Jesus told this parable about the Good Samaritan was for its shock value, because it was so uncharacteristic of Samaritans to be good. And in the Old Testament, the Israelites thought about Moabites in the same way that, that uh, New Testament people thought about, about Samaritans. There's, there was no such thing as a good Moabite, or so they thought. In Moses' day... It was the Moabite women who seduced the Israelite men into immorality and idolatry. 
As a result, 24,000 people died. So, as I said, there was a lot of a lot of bad blood between Israel and Moab. So, under normal circumstances, Moabites were barred from participating in the national corporate life of Israel. The the law in, in Deuteronomy specifically forbid the inclusion of Moabites in the affairs of Israel. So how then could Ruth enter into the congregation of the Lord? She was a Moabite. She did this by trusting God's grace and throwing herself completely on his mercy. So Ruth came to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the same way that we do. We also cannot comply with the requirements of the law. We are totally dependent upon the mercy and the grace of our kinsman redeemer, purchasing us and making it possible for us to be reconciled to him. Uh, I'll show you a few maps just to show you where Moab is in relation to to Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is up here. It's only about six miles south of Jerusalem. And Moab is over here on on the east side of the Dead Sea. So in order to get there, you can't, of course, go across the Dead Sea. You have to go around the Dead Sea, the north end of the Dead Sea, to Moab. And that's how you get there. That's the trek that Elimelech and his family would have made. So once again, uh, Bethlehem is on this main north-south ridge, with, along with Hebron, Bethlehem, Jerusalem. It's on the, on the near the summit of this main north-south ridge. And then as you get down into the Jordan Valley, here's Jericho. Here's the plains of Moab, where Israel was assembled just before they crossed the Jordan River to attack Jericho. And the book of Ruth doesn't really tell us which city in Moab they inhabited, but along here you'll see Debon and Kir Harasheth, the cities of Moab. So it's roughly 75 miles from Bethlehem to over here in Moab going around the north end of the Dead Sea. Here's Mount Nebo, where Moses viewed the Promised Land. And there was a highway running here along the Moab Highlands. So we have a, a, a ridge of mountains or hills on the west side of the Jordan, and then we have this, these Moab Highlands along here. And this was known as the King's Highway that traveled through Moab. 
And so Elimelech and his family would have gone around the Dead Sea and got on this king's highway and went down somewhere into Moab. Once again, the main, the main highway that runs north and south through here is the, the king's highway. And once you get connected up to that highway, you can travel down into Moab. And here's Mount Nebo again, the King's Highway. And uh, remember some of this geography when you think about Naomi and Ruth making the return trip back to, back to Bethlehem, at least back to Bethlehem for, for Naomi. It was Ruth's first visit to Bethlehem. So after the death of Elimelech and his two sons, Machlan and Kilion. Well, before I do that, um, one thing I didn't include in my PowerPoint presentation were the meanings of some of the names. You might find these interesting. Uh, the, the name Elimelech means God is my king, which is somewhat ironic because during this period of the judges, uh, there was no king in Israel. Naomi means pleasant. And if you remember later on when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, she says, don't, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because of all of the catastrophes that had happened in her life. Um, Machlan, one of the sons, it comes from the, from the root meaning to be sick, unhealthy, sickly. How would you like to have that name? Can you imagine having that name on the, on the playground? Here, come on, sickly, be, be on our team. And uh, Kilion isn't, isn't much better. It, it means wasting or pining. Uh, the, the names of the two daughters-in-law... Orpah, who was married to Kilion, uh, that name means fawn or gazelle. So apparently uh, she was thought to be a, a graceful person. Ruth means friendship or desirable one. And she certainly exemplified those qualities. So Machlon was, was married to Ruth and Kilion was married to uh, Orpah. But when Naomi heard that the famine had ended, we, we are told in, in the book of Judges that, that the famine during Gideon's time lasted for seven years. But the family of Elimelech was actually in Moab for 10 years. So maybe there was some time that had passed before uh, word got to Naomi that the, the famine had ended. But Naomi decided that it was time to go back to Bethlehem. And she urged her two daughters-in-law, even though they both said they would go with her, she urged them to, no, stay here, go back to your, your people. Um, she talked about having rest. And in the ancient world, uh, a woman having rest meant having a husband to take care of her, to provide for her. And she thought they would have better odds of, of finding 
a husband in, in their own home country than they would in Israel. She was finally able to persuade Orpah to stay. And so Orpah disappears off the, the pages of history, the pages of scripture. But Ruth was determined to stick with, with, um, with Naomi. It says that she cleaved unto her. And the word really means stick like glue. She was just determined that she was going to stay with Naomi. And Naomi decided, well, I can't talk her out of it. So she didn't try anymore. She allowed her to come along. But Ruth made a very determined decision. She made a sevenfold decision to stick with Ruth. She said, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. And this was an amazing, remarkable thing for for Ruth because the God of, of Naomi, the God of Israel, was not the God that she had been brought up believing in. The God of Moab was Chemosh, who uh, was a God who accepted human sacrifices. So the God of Israel was not at all like this God that the Moabites worshipped. Ruth said, where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when she said, may the Lord do so to me, she was not talking about her God, Kamar. She was specifically talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this is, uh, the statement is, appears many times in the Old Testament. May the Lord do so to me and more if I don't do this. So it was a death oath. She was serious about this. She was committed. Now, when... Naomi and Ruth went from Moab back to Bethlehem. They didn't just pack up the station wagon and drive for an hour and a half and get to to Bethlehem. This was a long, arduous journey. A journey that they probably would have had to make on foot. And here's a, a description of this journey. This would make a journey of about 75 miles and not a straight or level path. It meant they would have to descend from Moab, from the Moab highlands, to the Jordan Valley. And remember that this Jordan Rift Valley is in many places below sea level. So they would have had to to descend about 4,500 feet down to the the Jordan River Valley. And then they would have to make an ascent to Bethlehem, because that's up on the top of the ridge, followed by an ascent to Bethlehem of, of 3,750 feet. And it's not easy terrain either, walking through desert terrain to the wilderness of Judea. So Naomi and Ruth made this trip. When they got back to 
Bethlehem, how would they support themselves? How would they survive? Well, they didn't have, in those days, a, a social safety net like we do today in this country. Their social safety net was different. But they did have a provision for the destitute in the form of the law of gleaning. We read about that in Leviticus 19 and also in Deuteronomy 24. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So landowners weren't supposed to reap their harvest and then go back and reap it some more. Whatever they missed on the first pass was to be left for the destitute, the needy. And then in Deuteronomy, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheep in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Uh, this is a picture from a tomb in Egypt depicting a, a harvest scene. You see the two workers there carrying the heads of grain. Uh, interestingly, back here in the background, there are two girls uh, squabbling about uh, the gleaning. Apparently they were squabbling about uh, who got there first or who, who got to glean this area of the field. So it's interesting that uh, there's that level of detail in this picture. Now, t today in, in modern Israel, um, most Israelis, of course, use uh, modern agricultural equipment. But especially among the Bedouin, uh, there are still people who, who uh, harvest their crops using the old methods. And so you see this, this pile of, of the grain, the sheaves of grain piled up here in the field. And here you see a, a woman with a, a scythe cutting the grain, bundling it together. And then we are introduced to, in chapter 2 of, of Ruth, to this concept of the kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer is a, is a male relative, and he has several different responsibilities that are, that are given to him in Scripture. He uh, delivers or rescues. We read about that clear back in Genesis and Exodus. He redeems property. We read about that in Leviticus 27. Or person. We read about that in Leviticus, Leviticus 25. So he has these responsibilities to redeem the property of his relatives or the, the person of his relatives. He also had a responsibility to avenge the murder of a relative as a guiltless executioner. If people killed someone accidentally, not 
intending to, then they were able to flee to the cities of refuge. But a murderer uh, was not granted this privilege of, of fleeing to the city of refuge. It was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to avenge a murderer, to take his life. And then also, uh, the kinsman redeemer receives restitution for a wrong that was done to a relative who has since died. So, in other words, the relative was wronged and he's no longer able to receive restitution because he's since died. The, the kinsman redeemer was to receive that, that uh, restitution. Another concept that plays into the story of Ruth is the concept of leveret marriage. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So there is this concept of leveret marriage, but this, this concept of, of leveret marriage gets rolled up into the, the concept of the kinsman redeemer. So leveret marriage is a, a standalone custom, but it gets rolled up into, into this uh, custom of, of the kinsman redeemer and his responsibilities. This um, is a, an ancient city that was excavated And we see here the gates of the city. These are the gates of the city. And right here at the gates of the city, there's a a stone bench for people to sit on. And it was at the gate of the city that they would transact business. They would uh, take care of important things like the transfer of property and so on. And this would be done at the gates of the city for witnesses to, to be seen and to, to understand what was happening. And that, of course, is what uh, Boaz and the other near kinsman, who was nearer than him, so we have this, this uh, scenario where the near, other near kinsman is not able to or not willing to, to fulfill his responsibility. He's uh, apparently willing to... to do the property thing, but he's not prepared to do, take responsibility for Ruth. And so with the, there's a ceremony of the, with the shoe indicating the, the transfer of the title deed to, to uh, Boaz. So he takes responsibility for Elimelech's land and also for Ruth. And as a result of this, Ruth is grafted into the line of the Messiah. So Elimelech was married to Naomi, and they had two sons, Kilion and Machlan. Kilion was married to Orban. Machlan was married to Ruth. But of course, Elimelech died, and both of the sons died, and Ruth was married to Boaz. Boaz was descended from Salmon, who was married to Rahab. You remember her from from the book of Joshua in Jericho, that incident. 
So we have Boaz, and then their son was Obed, and his son was Jesse, and then his son was David. So Ruth was married into this line that would eventually result in David and eventually result in our Messiah, Jesus Christ. When Boaz was about to marry Ruth, the other people were very happy about this incident, about this development. And they said, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So we find some very interesting parallels between the story of Ruth and the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. First of all, there is a migration because of famine, which advances God's plan. This shows us how God is a God of providence. He works through seemingly natural events to bring about his plan. So Abraham, for example, had to go down into Egypt because he had to move because there was a famine in the land. And that often happens. That God brings about his plans through seemingly natural events. Also, we find a similarity in that a family's survival is endangered by a mother's childlessness. That was certainly the case with Abraham and Sarah. It didn't seem like they were going to have a child. And with Elimelech and Naomi, even after they did have two children, their children both died. And seemingly endangering their family succession. A foreigner's voluntary permanent immigration to a new land. Remember, God told Abraham to leave his homeland, to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and to go to a new land, which is the same thing that Ruth did. She left her homeland and went to a new land. The protection of the woman elected to bear the son of destiny. So we find in chapter 2 of Ruth that Ruth was protected. Boaz made sure that she was not harmed, that she was not molested. And the same thing happened with, with uh, Abraham and with Isaac, even though they made the mistake of, of lying and saying, oh, she's my sister. Well, both, both Abraham and Isaac did this. But God protected them to make sure that his line was protected the line that would eventually result in the Messiah. Uh, We have, with both Ruth and with the patriarchs, the betrothal-type scene of the chosen wife. So you remember the story of how Abraham sent his servant to to get a wife for Isaac. And we have this betrothal-type scene. And then with Ruth, we have this scene on on the threshing floor where 
Ruth requests that Boaz fulfill his responsibility as the kinsman redeemer, which he agrees to do. And of course, with both Ruth and with the patriarchs, we find female sexual initiative overcoming male inaction to provide an heir. And what I'm specifically thinking about here is Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar, where, where Judah was failing in his responsibility to Tamar to provide a husband for her, and she had to take action to overcome that. The purchase of property as a result of death. So what made this necessary for Boaz in the book of Ruth to purchase the property was the fact that Elimelech had died. Elimelech and his sons had died, so it made it necessary for him to purchase property. And the same thing happens uh, in the life of Abraham, where he is finding it necessary to, to purchase property after the death of his wife, Sarah. And then we have the integration of the foreign immigrants into their new homeland. So just as Ruth was integrated into her new homeland, Israel, we find a similar thing happening with the patriarchs. And that wasn't always an easy transition, was it? Uh, in Genesis 14, uh, Abraham had to go rescue Lot because he had been captured. In Genesis 20, we read about Abimelech. This is, this is once again the incident where um, Abraham lied about his wife, said she was his sister, and, and that was nearly disastrous. So there was a, a difficult transition there. Um, another interaction that he had with Abimelech was where there was strife between the servants of Abraham and the servants of Abimelech, and they uh, dug a well to try to smooth things out, made a treaty. Um, then we have uh, the death of, of Sarah. So there's that difficulty in the transition of being integrated into this foreign land. And then Isaac uh, comes along and he has his interactions with Abimelech. And then in, in Genesis 34, uh, this is another thing that not, did not endear Jacob and his family to the inhabitants of the land, the incident with Dinah and how the sons of, of Jacob decided to take action against the inhabitants of, of the city. And then we have marriage to a foreigner later leading to a ruling family. I'm thinking, of course, once again, of, of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. Uh, there is also the incident in Egypt when, when Joseph was in Egypt, where he married an Egyptian wife. He married a foreigner. And, of course, uh, Joseph rose to become the, the second in command in Egypt. the divine gift of conception providing the son or sons of destiny. That happened with Ruth having a son with Boaz 
And it happened, of course, with the patriarchs. Genesis 21 is the, the birth of Isaac. Genesis 25 uh, is where Isaac prays for his wife, Rebecca, because she was barren, was having difficulty having children. And God responded to that prayer. Um, Genesis 29 and 30, we read about Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. Uh, Jacob favored his wife, Leah, or excuse me, favored his wife, Rachel. And so God blessed Leah with, with several children. But he eventually blessed Rachel with a child as well, with a couple of children. So we see the conquest of obstacles impeding emergence of an important family, both in the Book of Ruth and with the patriarchs. Then we can look more closely at the story of Tamar and Judah and the son Perez. The, the neighbors of, of Naomi said, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So we find that there are some amazing parallels between the story of Tamar and the story of Ruth. First of all, Judah separates from his brothers. And of course, in the book of Ruth, Elimelech separates from his kin. So he goes to a land, separates from his kin, just as Judah separates from his brothers. Judah marries a Canaanite. He marries a Gentile. Boaz marries a Moabite. So he marries a Gentile. And then with um, with Judah, we see the death of his spouse, his wife, and the death of his two sons. And of course, it's just the reverse with Naomi, the death of her spouse, Elimelech, and the death of her two sons. So in each case, there's the death of a spouse and two sons. An in-law child is urged to return to her father's house. So after the death of his two sons, Judah urged his daughter-in-law, Tamar, to return to her father's house. And Naomi um, urged her in-law child, actually her two daughters-in-law, to return to her mother's house. Onan, the son of Judah, was willing to have sex with Tamar, but he was not willing to inseminate her. He was not willing to have a child by her. And in the story of Ruth, the closer redeemer, who is more closely related to Elimelech than than Boaz, he's willing to acquire the land, but he's not willing to acquire Ruth. And then another striking similarity is that Tamar takes bold initiatives in order to have this child who will be in the kingly line. And in the same way, Ruth takes bold initiatives going to Boaz on on the threshing floor to have what will eventually be a child in the kingly royal line. Through such initiatives, Tamar achieves the purpose of the leveret with one who was not her lover. In other words, 
he, he wasn't the brother of her, of her dead husband or husbands. It was her father-in-law. And through such initiatives, Ruth achieves the purpose of the leveret with one who is not her lever. In other words, she, she didn't have a remaining brother-in-law to have a child with. So a relative of her father-in-law provided the child. And Judah praises Tamar. Judah admits that, yeah, you, you did the right thing. I was the one who messed up the situation. And Boaz praises Ruth for her loyalty, her commitment to Naomi. And so as a result, Tamar produces a messianic child. And Ruth is the great-grandmother of the messianic child, David. Another similarity is the use of the verb nakar, meaning to recognize or take note of. And that verb is used both in the stories of Tamar in Genesis 38 and in the book of Ruth. Genesis 38 interrupts the flow of the Joseph story with 39.1 picking up where 37.36 left. So we, we have this story of Joseph and going, being sold into slavery, going to Egypt, and then we have this story of, of Judah and Tamar just kind of inserted in there. And the book of Ruth interrupts the flow of the story from Judges to 1 Samuel. In, in between we have in our Bibles the, the story of Ruth thrust in there. But it's an important story, one that has to be in there in order to give context of what happened and how the, how the story of salvation history advanced. Now, you know it was coming. There's got to be a chiastic structure in here, right? <laughs> well, there is. Indeed, there is in, in the book of Ruth. It, it is arranged as a chiasm. So first we read about Elimelech's family, the Depression. We read about all of these horrible things that happened to the family of Elimelech. He dies. His two sons die. It seems like all hope is lost. Like there's, there's, no, there's no way that Elimelech's family is going to be carried on. When Naomi returns to Bethlehem, her friends and neighbors gather around her in sympathy with Naomi and they comfort her in grief for all of the disasters that have happened to her. And then Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. And we read about Boaz and Ruth. Boaz takes the initiative to provide for Ruth to take care of her. And then next we find that Ruth takes the initiative to go to Boaz on the threshing floor. So we read about first about Boaz and Ruth and then about Ruth and Boaz. And then finally, when all of this is taken care of and settled and Ruth marries Boaz and they have a child, then we find Naomi's friends and neighbors gathering around her in sympathy, in joy. So she's gone from having her friends and neighbors gather around her in grief to having her friends and neighbors gathering around her in joy. And then finally we see 
the, the consummation, the, the ending of all of this, Elimelech's family is preserved. We see the uplifting as Elimelech's family is totally reorganized and we see the happy conclusion of the messianic line being carried on and the family being preserved and Ruth being grafted in to the messianic line. So the basic teachings of the book of Ruth, it affords a foreshadowing of the enlarged blessing to come. Gentiles are capable of being joined to the commonwealth of Israel upon condition of repentance and faith in Yahweh. And aren't we all appreciative of that blessing? That's what makes our salvation possible, that we can be grafted in and we can come to the God of Israel. God's marvelous and unexpected providence is also exhibited by the inclusion of a Gentile in the royal lineage of the Messiah. Ruth is afforded that great honor and privilege. The kinsman redeemer, the goel, as the Hebrew word is, serves as a messianic type. The little book of Ruth is one of the most instructive in the Old Testament concerning the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus. Here's a, a table of some of those parallels between the concept of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Ruth, and the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The kinsman redeemer had to be a blood relative. Likewise, Christ was born of a woman. The kinsman redeemer had to be able to purchase forfeited inheritance. Christ had the merit to pay the price for sinners. He was the only one who could fulfill that requirement of the kinsman redeemer on our behalf. Not only did he have to be able, he had to be willing to buy back the forfeited inheritance. And Christ willingly laid down his life. He wasn't just able, he was willing. The kinsman redeemer had to be willing to marry the wife of the deceased kinsman. And Christ marries the church, his bride. Let's look a little more closely at some of these concepts that are given to us of the kinsman redeemer as a messianic type. Jesus alone has the right to redemption. Rules and regulations do not, will not, and cannot. Jesus alone has the resource for redemption. He purchased us with the richness of the blood that flowed through his veins and onto the ground at Calvary. Jesus alone has a reason for redemption. It is, is his grace, his undeserved and unmerit, unmerited, unearned favor, which brings us into his family. Jesus alone gives us rest and redemption. 
Like Boaz, he says, glean not in another man's field. Stay in the field of my redemption and you will find the ultimate satisfaction. Ruth didn't even have to draw her own water. It was provided for her. Boaz said to her, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Likewise, our kinsman redeemer invites us to drink freely water from the wells of salvation. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. We read in the concluding chapter of Revelation. When Ruth gleaned in the field of Boaz, she was amazed that he treated her as if he knew her. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Likewise, our kinsman redeemer knows us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Naomi instructed Ruth to take note of the place where Boaz lay. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Naomi gave those instructions to Ruth before she went to the threshing floor. When the women came to the tomb of the risen Jesus, the angel told them, come and see the place where the Lord lay. Likewise, we need to take note of the incredible miracle that took place at that location. Ruth laid at the feet of Boaz. Look at the feet of our kinsman redeemer. John's gospel declares that it was when John the Baptist saw Jesus walking that he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Look at the feet of Jesus. He is the Lord of the calm as he walks along the seashore. He is the Lord of the storm as he walks upon the water. Look at his feet, feet that were pierced, feet that not only walked in the temple, but walked up Mount Calvary. Now, there are five Wednesdays in the month of May, so we won't be meeting next week. That's the fifth Wednesday, nor will we be meeting the first Wednesday in June. So it'll be two weeks before we meet again. And we'll be studying at that time the book of Esther, the other book of the Bible that is named after a woman. So just as a, sort of a, a teaser, a, a, a tie-in to that, it's kind of fun to compare and contrast Ruth and Esther. Now, Ruth was a Gentile woman. Esther is a Jewish woman. Ruth was a Gentile woman living among Jews, Esther is a Jewish woman living among Gentiles. Ruth 
was a Gentile woman who married a Jew in the royal line. Esther was a Jewish woman who married a Gentile who ruled an empire. The book of Ruth emphasizes the, the sovereignty of God, that he's in charge of the universe, that he directs everything according to his plan. The book of Esther emphasizes the providence of God, that the smallest things that happen have a reason. The whole book of Esther turns on the fact that one night the king couldn't sleep. The book of Esther is arranged in a chiastic structure also, and that's the, that's the pivot, that's the turning point when, when the king can't sleep. Apparently his, his uh, sleep number wasn't adjusted properly. But anyway, he, could, he couldn't sleep, and so he, that was when he, uh, instead of counting sheep, he had the, the historical records read to him, and that's when he realized that, that uh, Mordecai had never been rewarded for saving his life. And the whole story turns on that, that one little event. God's name is mentioned many times in, in the book of Ruth. It's never uh, mentioned explicitly in the book of Esther. And that's one of the peculiarities of, of the book of Esther is that God's name is not mentioned. But even though God's name is not mentioned explicitly, you can see very clearly the hand of God working through the providence of events. So, that's the book of Ruth. And we will conclude now with a word of prayer. Father, we are appreciative of the fact that you have provided us with a kinsman redeemer to bring about our salvation, to purchase us, to defend us, to protect us against the enemies that would destroy us. We're so thankful to you for that. And not only that you have provided us with a kinsman redeemer, we are thankful for all of the, the knowledge and the instruction that you've given us about this process of salvation, about the history of salvation, and the story of how much you have loved us and cared for us and provided for us. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.